Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, which is mourning the loss of another New Orleans music icon with the passing of Art Neville on Monday at the age of 81. Art Neville was a founding member of the Meters, and with brothers Charles, Aaron, and Cyril, the Neville brothers, brought New Orleans music to the mainstream and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Walmart will help the Salvation Army with its annual Stuff the Bus event at Pulaski County Walmart stores on August 3rd, 2019, from 8.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. For more information, you can go to kark.com or search Stuff the Bus Little Rock on Google. Tonight, we'll continue our discussion of the case against Cedley Alley, who was convicted of the brutal murder of Marine Lance Corporal Suzanne Marie Collins on July 11, 1985. In 2004, Alley's advocates began their campaign to obtain DNA testing of crime scene evidence. Their efforts included new claims that Alley's confession was false and coerced and alleged Brady violations based on medical examiner notes and some police reports they claimed were withheld during Allie's trial in 1987. Those requests were denied in 2004, and renewed requests, which named an alternate suspect, were made in 2006. Those requests were also denied, and on June 28, 2006, Allie was executed. In late April of 2019, Allie's daughter, on behalf of his estate, and at the urging of the Innocence Project, filed a renewed request for DNA testing with both the governor of Tennessee and in Shelby County Criminal Court. As always, we are a live show and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing this week? <clears throat> pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> I also, I found that post that you were talking about. <clears throat> Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, okay. I I searched what you searched, Clear and Convincing in Westminster 3. Um, that was a summary of the, the talk I had with uh, Bob Ruff back in May of last year, 2018. Okay. 
And um, this is kind of a critique of Russ' show more than a critique of mine. Um, the proponents of this site that we disagree on animal predation. And so the reference to that is simply, you know, my position is there was none because my position is there was no aquatic life in that drainage ditch. Right. And other people think there could have been fish, there could have been turtles. I don't I don't agree because that was a basically it was an overflow ditch. So mm-hmm. the level of water would depend upon the amount of rainfall and the uh drainage in Ten Mile Bayou and other areas. And so there would only mm-hmm. be significant water in there when there was a lot of rain. Okay. Um, there was only two, two to two and a half feet of water there at the time of the murders, and I just don't find it very likely that any aquatic life would be in two or two and a half feet of water. Finally, mm. when they drained the ditch, they did not find fish, crawfish turtles or any of those other things in the ditch when the water had been drained out. So there's no evidence of any animals, aquatic or otherwise, in the ditch. And that's the reason for my position. Other people believe it's possible. The other reason for my position that it didn't happen is the boys were face down in the mud and the injuries that are being attributed to animals are on their front of their bodies. Not okay. on their feet, not on their backs, not on their not on the backs of their legs. They're on the front, on Steve's face, on Chris uh Chris's genitals and, and I just don't find that to be that kind of damage with the body's face down to be right. probable. So right. so they're not talking bad about me. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I just wanted to have, give you an opportunity if we could find it to respond to what you were saying. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I uh, and I know the people that run this site, so uh, run the page. And I have no problems with what they said. You know they don't agree with me, um, but that's that's fine. I mean, heck, me and you don't always agree on West Memphis three, so I mean it happens. I just wanted to give you a chance to respond <laughs> because I found that and I'm like, oh no 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 no, sweetheart, we cannot be doing that. <laughs> so, all right. So you told me somebody to talk about about me, and really. They're talking more bad about Bob Ruff. Okay, darn that Bob Ruff. So, (laughs) all right. Well, we have a lot to cover, and we're going to have a little bit of a longer break uh, today because we're going to play a little bit of extra music. Um, Okay. So, uh, we do have a, a... Kind of new development. Um, Rodney Reed's family and friends 
are protesting at the Bastrop County Courthouse this week uh, to, I guess, try to get the Bastrop County District Attorney to withdraw his request for an execution date. That's that's not likely to happen. Yeah. Uh, It's not likely to happen. Now, interestingly, I saw a post from Rodney Reed's brother, Roderick, and I thought they initially said they were going to protest against Gertz, uh, the the district attorney. They were going to prosecute. They were going to protest at his house, and then they were going to protest at his office. And now they're protesting at the courthouse. At his house? Isn't that kind of at his house? I well, no, it's not really. If they stay on the public. Road. Okay. Um, but I secretly, I secretly hope. Well, no. If he lives now, if he lives like in a gated subdivision, they ain't going to get in. Right. You know, there's there's no way, and they would have no right of access to a gated subdivision. Um, but if he lived in an open subdivision, if they stay on the street and the sidewalk, mm-hmm. that is public property. True, true. Um, but then it went to be in his office, and now it's the courthouse. Huh. And Maybe they talked about it, honestly. Well, that may be. Uh, you know, I don't know why the I don't know why the locations changed. Um, but uh, I have sent off to Bastrop County to get copies of the documents and some of the motions that were filed because Allie, um, not Allie, uh, Rodney Reed's attorneys filed a supplemental motion um, objecting to this execution date. So I requested that and the supporting documents that they filed. I probably will get those sometime this week. Also, a new writ has been filed in this district court in Bastrop County. It's 117 pages, so I probably will hope that it comes online from Innocence Project or when it is transferred to the Court of Criminal Appeals, I will send an email to the wonderful young lady that always helps me so much with my document request. (laughs) From the Court of Criminal Appeals, or uh, send her an email and then send her, you know, a check for five bucks uh, to get a copy of the writ once it's lodged at the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, I have no idea what the what it is, although I suspect it's about the alleged investigation by Gary Joe Bryant, who was killed in 1996. Um, mm-hmm. Not too long after Stacy. Um, okay. The problem with that is that they filed that claim in 2016, and then they right. never did anything with it. So if they're bringing it up again, they're probably going to find that the Court of Criminal Appeals is going to pretty quickly dismiss. Right. 
because they should have pursued that in 2016. Yeah. Um, so, but that is, uh, that's pretty much with Reed. Like I said, hopefully the, the new writ will be posted by Innocence Project and I'll be able to get a copy of it. Sounds good. Uh, definitely look forward to hearing that information because, you know, when somebody's life hangs in the balance, it's always something interesting to uh, keep an eye on. Well, I, you know, I, the reason Roddy Reed's life hangs in the balance is because his DNA was found on the body inside and on the body of a murdered woman. And his claims of a consensual relationship with that woman have never been supported by any reliable testimony or evidence. Right. Basically, if I remember correctly, it's been a minute since we've actually in-depth looked at this, but you said it's just corroborated by Rodney's friends, correct? Well, most of it, up until 2015... Only Rodney's friends and family claimed Mm -hmm. any relationship. However, an interesting note is that even though media interviews, his mother and brother Roderick always claimed to have known Stacy, to have known about the relationship, to have seen them together, neither of them has ever testified in any court of law. Right. Under oath subject to cross-examination. And the reason that the attorneys, uh, there's continued criticism of his trial attorneys, the reason trial attorneys could not bring in multiple witnesses claiming an alleged relationship between Stacy and Rodney is because the chance of the state being able to introduce the five prior or four prior rapes committed by Rodney Reed prior to Stacy's murder, including the one where he claimed a consensual relationship and was acquitted. Right. So, um, you know, they had to put the two, the two least damaging witnesses on the stand to prevent evidence of these other crimes coming in to rebut claims that Rodney Reed had an, a, an affair with her and didn't need to rape her. Mm-hmm. And they had two cases linked to Rodney Reed by DNA. And he okay. can't claim a consensual relationship with a 12-year-old girl. Absolutely not. So... <clears throat> Like I said, you know, they had to be very careful, so I wish people would quit criticizing his attorneys. They did the best right. they could with what they had, but, you know, that they had to keep very damaging testimony from coming in. And right. the only way they could do that was with the most innocuous. I saw him talking at HEB, and I saw her come to his house. Mm-hmm. Which neither of which proves a relationship. In 2014 and 2015, 
a cousin of Stacy's came forward named Calvin Horton. But aside from claiming that he saw the two of them at a bastard, leaving a bastard Dairy Queen, nothing he offers in his affidavit really carries that much weight. Most of it's hearsay things his parents told him. Right. And then two former co-workers came, up, came forward, and one of them says that uh, Stacy was always happy to see Rodney when he came in the store, and she would hide from her fiancé and act scared of him. And then the other witness says that one day at lunch, Stacy told her, the witness, that uh, she was having an affair with a black man named Rodney, and she was afraid of what her fiancé would do if he found out. But again... The woman has no knowledge, and the other co-worker has no knowledge of any relationship outside the store. And the woman who says Stacy admitted this to her, she talked to police twice during the murder investigation and never mentioned this statement from Stacy to the police. Okay. So when she, if she were to testify, that would cause some serious problems with her credibility. Absolutely. So, um, you know, and it's still what the witnesses are claiming, it doesn't even really prove a relationship. And it certainly doesn't prove that they were together a day or two before Stacy was murdered. And I honestly want to know if the police were planning on framing Rodney Reed from the beginning because they knew Jimmy Finnell killed her and they were going to cover for Jimmy Finnell, why wouldn't he have been arrested in 1996? Why would they have not said, get Rodney Reed's DNA, there's DNA, run the DNA? True. You know, it was a year almost. And nobody, no coworkers, no family, no friends mentioned Rodney Reed's name at all, which leads me to infer that there was no relationship with Rodney Reed. Also a good point. <laughs> so, all right. So back to Sedley Alley. Um, okay. He was uh, – Convicted in 1987 of the murder of Lance Corporal Suzanne Marie Collins, uh, who was stationed on the Millington uh, Naval Support Activity in Millington, Tennessee, in July 1985. Allie kidnapped Suzanne from the base where she was running to get in her daily PT. Um he took her to Edmund Orgill Park. He severely beat her, probably in the initial abduction as well as on the way to Orgill Park, and then once he arrived at Orgill Park. And then he decided that he uh, has to make it look like a sex maniac killed her. So he takes off her clothes, takes a branch from a tree, a 31-inch branch, and uses that to sexually assault her, uh, thereby killing her. 
Right. Um, yeah, pretty sure. Allie's vehicle, Allie was never identified by any of the witnesses. None of them got a good enough look at the driver of the vehicle to be able to identify Allie. However, his vehicle was identified by three people. Uh, two Marines who were running, who had passed Suzanne Collins and then heard her screams and ran back in time to see her being abducted. And a guard gate who saw Allie's vehicle driving out of the base, off the base. Um, and the Marines reported it immediately. Uh, while Allie and his wife were giving a statement, because a bolo ended up with uh, him being pulled over and brought into the Naval Investigative Service for questioning, uh, they questioned him and his wife. The answers were uh, that Allie and his wife gave were enough to allay suspicion, and so they were allowed to leave. When they were leaving, when Allie started his vehicle, the two Marines immediately said, that is the car, that is the car. They recognized it not only by sight, by the Kentucky license plates, but also by sound. And a Ford or Mercury station wagon with a loud muffler and Kentucky plates was also described by the gate guard. So once Suzanne's body was found in Orville Park, Allie was arrested. Initially, he didn't want to talk. He invoked Fifth Amendment, said he wanted an attorney, but they gave him some coffee and some cigarettes and some breakfast, and he eventually decided to talk to one of the Naval Investigative Service people. Uh, the Naval Investigative Service also was – the Naval Investigative Service was not involved in, in Suzanne's body being found in Orgel Park or anything to do with the crime scene there. So Allie agrees to talk, and he confesses. However, in his confession, he lied. He said he accidentally hit Suzanne with his car and then was going to take her to the hospital, but she was calling him names and threatening to get him in trouble. So he got angry. He went to the park, and he stabbed her in the head with a screwdriver by accident. Oh, let me trip over something and plunge this. And, yeah. Your... And the authorities, the prosecutor and the Memphis police and the Memphis medical examiner knew that that's not how it happened. That was not their theory at trial. And thankfully, Allie, while he was being evaluated for multiple personality disorder in a state hospital, he told one of the social workers there that he made the stuff about hitting her with a car and stabbing her with a screwdriver because he wanted the police report to be wrong. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to manipulate things so that he and, – and people confessing will do that. They will try to manipulate things. They will, they will try to lessen their culpability – by making it claiming it was an accident, it wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, by by saying she got in the car, she wanted to go to the park. It was her idea to go to the park. You know, just like a pedophile who kills a child will admit to killing a kid, but will not admit to having sex with them. Yeah. Right. Because they don't want to be a pedophile. Mm-hmm. So, um, he, Allie went to trial. His defense at trial was insanity. His attorneys did not question the veracity of his confession, and given that he had an admission to one of the social workers that he deliberately lied about those two aspects, they didn't challenge the confession. There's also the fact that Allie, once he had confessed, he agreed to go with the naval investigative officers to Orgel Park. He took them to the crime scene, which wasn't marked, and he showed them the tree from which they from which he took the branch that he used to assault Suzanne Collins. They did not have this information. So he corroborated his own confession. Wow. Um, he, the, you know, the evidence was overwhelming. There was some evidence that didn't, uh, wasn't consistent with Allie, fingerprints, some hairs, but there was hairs in Allie's vehicle that were consistent with Suzanne Collins. There was blood in his vehicle that was type O, which was also consistent with Suzanne Collins. It was a little equivocal because it's also consistent with Allie. Um, but the jury, after a very short time, convicted Allie of first-degree murder or capital murder. And then uh, after a short sentencing phase, because most of the mitigation was in with Allie's insanity defense, um, after a short time, they sentenced him to death on the capital murder and – um, he was sentenced to 40 years on each on the counts of rape and kidnapping, and those sentences were to be served consecutively, which means if he somehow got the, the death penalty thrown out and then was sentenced to 60 years for the murder, he would serve 60 years. And then he'd have to start serving the 40 years on the other two, each of the other two sentences, before he could be eligible for parole. So basically life in prison. Correct. Because, you know, basically the way consecutive sentences work, if you have to serve, say, 50 percent, you're sentenced to 30, you're sentenced to 60 years, you serve 30. Then you're sentenced to another 40 years, you serve 20. And then you serve the next 20. And then you become eligible for parole. Right. So um, Allie filed a direct appeal, and his conviction and sentence were affirmed. He raised multiple issues, none of which dealt with the veracity of his confession, actual innocence, or any combination of the two. They merely challenged rulings, uh, evidentiary rulings made by the court and uh, limitations uh, 
of the insanity defense. Then he did state post-conviction and um, initially after his direct appeal was decided, the Tennessee Supreme Court, which is the body in Tennessee that sets up execution dates, set an execution date for him of November 13, 1989. Somehow, I cannot find how or when, perhaps when he filed his initial post-conviction writ or when he requested counsel, the November date was was changed to May 2nd, 1990. And he filed his state post-conviction and requested a stay of execution. And the trial judge who was overseeing the state post-conviction would not grant a stay of execution and tried to expedite the post-conviction claim. That went to um, – well, Allie went to the state Supreme Court, and Judge Jones on April 26, 1990, granted him an indefinite stay of execution, which would enable him to complete his state post-conviction process. Um, and the denial of the state post-conviction was uh, – Appealed to the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals. Judge White of that court in 1994, um, with other judges on the panel, I don't think it was just Judge White, um, she did a, decide to remand the state post conviction claim back to the trial court to a different judge because there were statements from Judge Axley, the original trial judge that were evidence that he had formed a bias against Allie. It's an understandable bias against Allie, but it was a bias that got in his way of impartially deciding the post-conviction claims. Right. Um, and so... She remanded the state post-conviction claims to another court, and in uh, which all of them were denied. That judge held additional hearings, let the defense put on whatever evidence it wanted to put on, and then he denied the claims. Um, and the reason he denied the claims is not because he's against Sedley Alley. Or you know he he's in on the conspiracy against Sedley Alley by the Navy and the police in Memphis and the prosecutors, but because Alley did not prove that any of his claims had merit and effect that had merit or affected the outcome of his trial, because that's the standard. Um, it's not. This you know this error happened in your trial, therefore you get a new trial. The error has to be looked at to determine whether the error affected the jury verdict. And and for the most part, they don't. 
because uh-huh. the trial is not taken as one isolated thing, but they look at the trial as a whole. So one improper comment by a prosecutor on the sixth day of trial that is made and the judge uh, sustains an objection and then everybody moves on, you know, that's not necessarily going to affect the jury. So um, in 1997, the state Texas uh, Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the denial of post-conviction relief in state court. And then in 2001, Tennessee enacted its state post-conviction DNA Analysis Act. And I printed up some stuff on the act last night, and I hope that I can find it because if I can't, I'm going to be very upset. Um, But again, the uh, post-conviction, state post-conviction DNA acts in every state have certain factors that you have to, the petitioner has to basically get a yes to each factor in order to be entitled to testing. If the answer to any one factor is no, then there's no testing. In Tennessee, they have uh, Tennessee Code Annotated Section 40-30-304, which are the mandatory DNA testing provisions. Um, The court shall order DNA analysis if it finds a reasonable probability exists that the petitioner would not have been prosecuted or convicted if exculpatory results had been obtained through DNA analysis. So in a lot of cases, if, for example, there were no fingerprints from the uh, suspect on the murder weapon, for example, and that is brought forth to the jury, but the jury convicts anyway, then DNA testing the gun is not necessarily going to have any effect even if his DNA is not found on the gun because the jury already knew that nothing linked him to the gun. Right. Now, you how see what I'm saying? often would something like that happen? Like if you can't link me to the murder weapon, how likely is it that they can still get a conviction? Well, it actually is. It's actually not uh, not that unusual because a murder weapon, if you've just used a gun to kill somebody, you're probably going to either A, destroy the gun, and then they don't even have a murder weapon, or B, wipe the gun down and then get rid of it. But there's other ways even without the gun to, you know, to uh, – And And they can it. link the gun to him. They can link the gun to him in different ways. For example, if it's uh, if it's a an an ant. Well, no, not no. We're not even gonna go there. Uh, say it's an uh, antique derringer, okay? 
and you have three witnesses that say he had an antique derringer. Mm-hmm. Or it is a Beretta with his initials on the the stock. Or it's a pink gun. And then you have you have people who say he had a pink gun or he had a red mm-hmm. gun. Or, you know, he put nail polish, his initials and nail polish on it. I mean, there are other ways you can link somebody without physical evidence to link right. them. Um, okay. And, you know, like in the in the Rodney Reed case, this is similar to the provisions in Texas. One of the reasons that Rodney Reed can't get DNA testing in Texas is because he is already linked by DNA. To the murder, and he has not brought forth evidence that explains the presence of his DNA or proves an innocent explanation for his DNA. Right. And so, not finding his DNA on the belt that was used to strangle Stacy, that's not going to exculpate him. Finding unknown DNA is not going to exculpate him. Even finding Jimmy Fennell's DNA is not going to necessarily exculpate him because Jimmy and Stacy lived together. Would it, even though it wouldn't exculpate him, I hope I said that correctly, even if it wouldn't, uh, would that be strong enough to possibly give him uh, a lesser sentence? No. Because again, he's tied by DNA in and on her body. Okay. With no no proof of a relationship prior to her murder. Okay. So the second um the second factor is that the evidence is still in existence and in such a condition that DNA analysis may be may be conducted. So in this case, um, or like in Reed's case, one of the reasons that he was denied DNA testing is because the evidence predates DNA handling protocols. So pieces of evidence were commingled together rather than being stored separately in their own plastic bags. Um, You know, I mean, back in the 90s and the 80s, once something had been processed, nobody handled it with gloves. Evidence went into banker's boxes. Right. I mean, you know, I... I came I came across an earring that belonged to Damian Eccles in the Western of this police case police files. Hmm. It should not have been in the box with documents. It should have been in a box with physical evidence. And when I came right. across it, after we looked at it, we brought it to the um 
the evidence control person and said this should probably be in a physical evidence box, not a document box. But it had probably gotten misplaced there during trial or during someone else's review of the evidence, uh, probably an attorney's review because only the attorneys could access the physical evidence. Okay. Although I know a couple people who had an in and were able to examine the physical evidence for photographing and things like that before the West Memphis 3 case really heated up. Um, So – and that's – you know, that's another one. If if all the evidence was stored in a freezer at the medical examiner's office and the building collapsed and the freezer was destroyed – and everything in it was exposed to high heat, or I think this happened in New Orleans, I think our medical examiner's office literally flooded, and documents and physical evidence floated away. Damn. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, this is, Allie's request for DNA testing, I think, was like 17 years after his murder conviction. Mm-hmm. The third factor is that the evidence was never previously subjected to DNA analysis or was not subjected to the analysis that is now requested, which could resolve an issue not resolved by previous analysis. That means if you were to go to trial now and they did – Uh, touched DNA testing and found your DNA and you were convicted, you could not come back in two years and try to get touched DNA testing. Right, because it could be gone. Even if the – well, no, you can't – you can't – if you've already been linked by the same methodology – the same testing method, touch DNA, that you want to try because things are more sensitive and they can handle mixtures better or whatever, uh, you still would not be entitled to it because they've already done touch DNA. They've already found your touch DNA. Okay. Um, or if, for example, if you had somebody, um, let's say, uh, well, let's say Kevin Cooper. Okay, he got DNA testing in 2001, and the testing was performed in 2002. He got mitochondrial DNA testing in 2004. He should not be entitled to additional DNA testing. Right. So... um, and in, in most cases, in cases from the 80s and the even the early 90s, um, that that one really is usually a yes. It's never been subjected to testing or was not subjected to the analysis that's now requested. And then right. um, finally, the application for analysis is made for the purpose of demonstrating innocence and not to unreasonably delay the execution of sentence or administration of justice. And this looks to uh, basically filing a request 
three weeks before your execution date, which is three years after the law went into effect. Right. Um, at, and, you know, that's what that's what Rodney Reed's attorneys did. They filed the morning of a hearing on a motion to set execution date. They filed a request for DNA testing. And that was 11 years after that law went into effect. Right. So, I mean, that right there is dead in the water, correct? And you can say we're just enforcing our clients' rights, but if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it looks like a duck, it's a duck. Right. So, um, the Tennessee Code uh, Section 40-30-305 is discretionary DNA testing provisions, which uh, – and you can, apply, you can apply either under the mandatory provisions or the discretionary provisions or both. In that case, if the post-conviction court finds yes to all the questions, then it may order DNA analysis, but it has to find that, again, a reasonable probability exists that analysis of the evidence will produce DNA results that would have rendered the petition's, petitioner's verdict or sentence more favorable if the results had been available at the proceeding leading to the judgment of conviction. That would be like a, a person convicted of a rape murder doing DNA testing perhaps that finds they didn't rape the victim, disproving the rape of the victim, but not necessarily negating guilt for the murder based on other evidence. Right. Um, of course, they would argue he didn't rape or he didn't murder her, but um, that's, uh, you know, that's what they do. And then the second provision is the evidence is still in existence and in such condition that DNA analysis may be conducted. Um, the evidence was never subjected to DNA analysis or was not subjected to the analysis that's now requested. So if you got STR analysis, I think STR is what they still use. So you couldn't get STR, get an inculpatory result, and wait three years and try and test DNA again, hoping to get an, a, an exculpatory result. Or, right. Um, and some states also, if you request DNA testing, and then it's either no DNA or um, not exculpatory. You can't then say, okay, I want to test more evidence. I want to test things I didn't ask to test. You only get to test one time. And then the application for analysis is made for the purpose of demonstrating innocence and not to unreasonably delay the execution um, or a sentence or administration of justice. Sorry. Uh, that one is the same as well. And in that case, if a court finds yes to all those questions, then the court 
may order testing. But all four elements must be met before DNA analysis will be ordered by the courts. And that brings up an interesting um, claim, and it's one that's made in Rodney Reed's case, and I'm seeing it made in Allie's case. Um, if they're so certain that he's guilty, why won't they test the evidence? But the the state can't test anything. They've got their conviction. It's based on the evidence that they had at the time. They can't test it and get new new results because that would be new evidence, and even if it's inculpatory, it would still entitle more likely than not the person to a new trial or at least a new hearing. Right. So, um, and also, I mean, the DNA is in the custody of the state, but they're not free to do whatever the hell they want with it. They have to maintain it and they have to safeguard it. Um, there were some issues with West Memphis 3. Apparently, there was a rumor that the, the state had done some additional testing on some evidence and just didn't find any DNA. And that's what led Ellington to decide that they would all get new trials. Frankly, I don't even really believe that. <laughs> because, it, you know, if that were the case, I'm sure Brent Davis would have done it a long time ago on anything that the defense didn't want to test. Uh-huh. So, and sometimes, uh, and Allie, Allie's done it, and the West Memphis Three did it, and Reed is doing it. Sometimes they're wanting to test things that are not immediately relevant or not provably relevant to the crime scene or to the murder. For example, in Allie's case, they wanted to do DNA testing on beer bottles that were found in Edmund Orgill Park about a half a mile away from where Suzanne's body was. Um, but okay. that, you know, that's, those aren't connected. They were found, they were collected, but there's nothing that proves that either of them, that they were connected. Uh, the beer cans found out in the, you know, out in the field or the woods near Stacy's body. Um, you know, those are not demonstrably connected, provably connected. The defense wants to keep saying that they are, but they're not. So, um, Allie went on. Uh, he did not ask for DNA testing when that law was passed in 2001. He went to federal court and uh, pursued his federal habeas claim, raising most of the issues that he raised in his state post-conviction claim. There were some additional issues that he raised that had never been presented to the state courts, which is not going to succeed. And then he offered new factual allegations in support of other issues. Um, in the federal court, 
the federal judge went through, and she uh, basically determined what claims had been raised in state court and found that none of them had any merit. And there were a few times in their claims of bias against Judge Axley where she was actually quite critical of the defense because Uh she felt that they were exaggerating the facts or, or playing loose with the facts and attempting to mislead the court. And when they filed a motion to alter or amend her judgment, she um, really let him have it because apparently they offered new allegations against Judge Axley that she felt crossed the line. Um, because, you know, she didn't find any of the prior allegations to be sufficient to grant relief. You know, why would they think that these new allegations were going to have a better result? And um, not one of the claims involved actual innocence, not one of the claims involved false confession, uh, not one of the claims even involved ineffective assistance to counsel for failing to investigate and adequately defend against the confession or getting, you know, a new medical examiner to check the work of the, you know, the state examiner. Um, Again, no actual innocence, still based on the confession, still based on the insanity defense, which basically is that he did it, but he wasn't responsible for it. And the federal denial of relief was affirmed by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal and the U.S. Supreme Court de- declined to hear the case. Right. So that is um, kind of up to the federal habeas corpus claims. And then a new execution date, because his all of his claims, state and federal post-conviction claims, were done. Once the U.S. Supreme Court says we're not going to hear it, and denies a writ, you're done. Yeah, game over. And game over, a new execution execution date was set for June 3rd, 2004. And new attorneys came in. And those new attorneys, for the first time, raised actual innocence claims. Um, one of the first things they did, they they tried to get the federal court to alter or amend its decision. And that didn't go over well. And then between 2004 and 2006, when Allie was executed, it was a flurry They were in state court. They were in federal court. They were sometimes in both courts at the same time. They went to the U.S. Supreme Court multiple times. They uh, tried to get the Tennessee Supreme Court into the case a couple of times. 
So it was a a flurry of claims and allegations, and it was crazy. So um, you want to take a break now, and then we'll get into the – basically, I'm going to hit the highlights. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it would take me another two hours to go through every single motion that his attorneys filed and every response filed by the state. Absolutely. We can go ahead and take our break, and we'll be right back with more clear and convincing after this. Michael, you got one more song. I got one more song? One more song. Okay. One more Original song. Original break. 
Okay. How can I convince you what you see is real? Who am I to blame you for doubting what you feel? I was always reaching, you were just a girl. I knew I took for granted the friend I have in I was living for a dream, loving for a moment, taking on the world, that was just my Freshen my producer of the year over here. Coke. Hmm. The producer of the year What's that? over here. The producer of the year over here. Oh. <laughs> That's okay. My internet's been wonky lately, so I'm just glad I don't have to try and do it because we'd get cut off probably. <laughs> and I went and got Fire TV. Oh, really? How's <laughs> so, well, I'm going to definitely have to keep my cable. <laughs> yeah, I mean. All right. Yeah, definitely. It, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's Internet-based. Um, you can watch live t- TV on some channels. But you can't watch live TV on others. Like A&E, you can't watch live. Right. So it's great on demand. And with Amazon Prime, I've got movies and all that stuff. And Netflix, I've got movies and all that stuff. But I can't, like in the morning when I'm getting ready for work, I can't watch Good Morning America. Because the ABC channel doesn't offer live TV in this area. Right. And um, I can't watch A&E to watch Dog the Bounty Hunter. I've been watching First 48. And that's just not the same. And I get into the case, and I don't want to get my shower and get dressed and get ready for work. (laughs) So, it's bad. So, um I'm going to have to get a TV with two HDMI ports because my current okay. TV only has one. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I bought my TV in, I think it was 2011. Uh, when the TV, or it might have been even 2010, when the TV that I had when I lived in Memphis died. Mm-hmm. So, um, my TV predates <laughs> HDMI ports. So, I may be going to Best right. Buy after work tomorrow. I don't know. Uh-oh, new TV time. Yeah. 
So, well, I saw a 28 inch one at Best Buy for like $119. Oh, that ain't bad at all. And it's got everything I need. I'm not going for the, you know, 4D or whatever it is, 4H or. I'm not going for the um, 4K. Yeah, I knew it was a letter. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Lisa, technology. I know. All right. So back to Sudley Alley in 2004 with a June 3rd execution date looming. Alley filed in, I think, early May his first request for DNA testing under Tennessee's Post-Conviction DNA Analysis Act. Uh, And for the first time, he alleged actual innocence. The grounds he raised in his request were that his confession was false, and this basically involved saying that Suzanne Collins was not hit by a car and was not stabbed in the head by a screwdriver and ignoring Allie's admission that he made those things up deliberately to manipulate the confession. Um, They also had an investigator who had found a reference in a report to a statement made by Dr. Bell at the crime scene that he theorized that Suzanne had been dead approximately six hours prior to her body being discovered, which would have right. placed the time of death around 3.30 in the morning because he made the scene at 9.30. Now, this is a statement that he made prior to doing the autopsy prior to doing any prior to even knowing anything about what had happened to Suzanne and mm-hmm. time of death is always an estimate you cannot pinpoint a time of death with precision because even even the factors that you rely on like rigor mortis liver mortis body temperature um uh, eye, you know, cloudiness in the eyes or whatever, all those factors occur within a range of times, not this occurs exactly two hours after death. And this occurs exactly two hours after death. You know, everything's within a range and can be, there are so many environmental variables that can affect, like this is July in Memphis, Tennessee, um, you know, her body temperature is probably going to seem awfully high because it was probably, it was extremely high at the time, actually. Because it's freaking July. (laughs) At night, the temperature, the temperature doesn't go down below, you know, 75. And I can remember a couple of times when the temperature was still in the 80s and 90s at 9 and 10 o'clock at night. So, um, and that's how it is here sometimes. 
like right now, let's see if I could do this without hanging us up. It is after 9 o'clock at night in New Orleans in July, and the temperature, according to my Weather Kitty app, is 78 degrees. So, you know, it doesn't cool off much yeah, was at just this say, time I of year. Like midnight the other night, it was like 92 here. So, I mean, right. not shocking. And um, another problem, another, well, issue with that particular claim is that, as I recall reading in the opinions on the DNA requests, Dr. Bell really didn't testify about any time of death at trial. So it's not as though the jury was told she died at exactly 10.30 or 11 o'clock or 11.30. Based on her injuries, she would have died very soon after they were inflicted. And that was his testimony. But uh, he didn't say that was 11.30. And the other thing the uh, investigator found were notes that were in the medical examiner's files, which they claim were not produced to the defense, um, which is, you know, probably correct because at that time they weren't producing notes the way they are now. Um, But it also basically just says, I told this officer that, um, you know, I believe that she was dead six hours before I made the scene at 930. So it's basically just, you know, corroborating with what's in the officer's report. What's in the officer's report is hearsay. And what's in his notes is also hearsay. And by that time, he was deceased. Mm-hmm. So he could not be questioned he could not be called to testify to even authenticate that note. Right. Or to explain why he he believed what he believed at the scene at 930 in the morning. Um, it's not, you know, it wasn't his ultimate opinion on time of death. And this may have been an instance similar to the Western of the Three case where the medical examiner actually never formed a fixed opinion about time of death because there wasn't enough information for them to try to do so. Absolutely. Um, And also in the false confession claim, they also claim that the length of the confession on tape is uh less than the timing of the confession in the notes or the reports. And so therefore that shows that the, you know, the, the Naval investigators turned the tape on and off or, you know, coerced somehow coerced Allie into giving the statement or, you know, whatever. And basically they brought in Richard Leo to support that. And unfortunately, you know, Leo's like, well, 
we don't have a tape, so we don't know, but I bet you this is what happened. <laughs> not very, not very strong evidence. Um, and it's an opinion. Yeah. And the veracity of the confession was actually decided by the jury. Um, and Allie's attorneys never challenged the confession. These are all things that could have been brought up at trial. They weren't because there also was that statement by Allie about lying about hitting her with the car and stabbing her with the screwdriver. Um, another issue that they raised was that one of the witnesses, Scott Lancaster, who really did not see – he didn't witness any of the interaction between Allie and Suzanne. He didn't witness the abduction. He saw a guy next to a car that he believed fit the description of Allie's vehicle. Um, who The guy he saw, he said, was 5'8", had dark hair, was very tan. Well, Allie was 6'4", and either had blonde hair like the victim or red hair, depending upon who was arguing, uh, what issue they were arguing. Um, and um, so he may not have actually seen Allie at all. Uh, but his statement describing someone else who looks like the guy from Memphis that Suzanne was dating at the time, um, the problem is is that the two Marines and the gate guard both had no doubt about Allie's vehicle based not on sight but also sound. Yeah, it's kind of hard to replicate sound. And license plate, because the gate guard was very specific that the vehicle he saw had a Kentucky license plate. Um, they also had information. This was hearsay because it was based on a statement by the investigator, allegedly made to her by John Borup, that uh, he drove a brown-on-brown Dodge Aspen station wagon at this time. Uh, supposedly that was his aunt's car and he had access to it. She did not bother to ask him what state was the car registered in. Um, I have posted pictures on the on the page in the slideshow of the Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi license plates. Right. For 1985. There's no way that anybody is going to get those plates confused with one another because they're all three, all four different. Um, and we don't know what state Borup's car was registered in since he was from Memphis. I would suspect his whole family was from Memphis, so more likely than not, his car was actually registered in Tennessee. And they make, you know, they make claims that the um, identification of license plate was iffy, but 
I think that's just posturing and misleading the court the way they tried to do in the the federal post-conviction claims. Um, They also claim that John Borup, uh, who was Suzanne's boyfriend in Memphis, they had been dating a little while, a short time. Um, He would have had a motive to kill Suzanne while Allie did not. Um, John Borup and Suzanne had been dating for a short time. Uh, Again, everything is based on his statements allegedly made to this investigator, April Higuera. Um, One of the statements he made to her, though, that she reports in her book, not her affidavit, is that um, Suzanne thought their relationship was exclusive, but he had other girls on the side. So to me, that says he has no motive. If he's got other girls, he doesn't think it's an exclusive relationship. Um, Suzanne was also engaged to another Marine who had uh, been transferred to California. And this is something that they get totally wrong in all of their claims. They claimed Suzanne was going to leave the following day after her graduation and go to California and be with her fiancé. However, Suzanne was stationed, uh, had orders to go to Cherry Point, North Carolina. She was a good Marine. She was going to go to Cherry Point, North Carolina. She was going to be with her boyfriend. And she was going to be leaving John Borup in Memphis not to go be with this other guy in California, but to go to do her duty station in Cherry Point, North Carolina. I don't see where that would give John Borup any motive to kill her. And I have done an internet search on John Borup. Not a single negative thing comes up about him. Not one. He's married. He has children. He's a businessman. Um, he doesn't come up in any news articles. He doesn't come up with any criminal records. Um, he's just, I just don't see him doing something this heinous and then leading such a normal life going forward. True. I would agree. So doing something this heinous because your girlfriend is transferred by the Marine Corps um, and then going on and leading a normal life. I, I don't think he could he could ever have a normal relationship with a woman because he would be controlling and jealous and whatever in every relationship. Huh. So which describes Sedley Alley, not John Borup. And as for the lack of Allie's motive, Allie saw her, he wanted her, he took her, he beat her, and then he had to kill her. You know, that's, that's, there's your motive. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes strangers 
do kill people they don't even know. And you don't really understand it, except that he had a problem with women. And she apparently, Suzanne apparently resembled the wife that he'd been fighting with all night and who he used to beat. Uh, Another issue that they raised is tire tracks at the abduction site did not match Allie's vehicle. Uh, Again, that's uh, no, the tire tracks were not used in Allie's trial. The state never claimed that there were tire tracks that matched Allie's vehicle. Mm -hmm. At the abduction site or at Edmund Orgo Park or anywhere else. Um, so that didn't play any part whatsoever in his conviction. Um, there was some evidence that did not match Allie, and the jury had heard about some of that evidence. The other evidence they didn't hear about, but none of it was used to convict Allie. And given the fact that state, uh, Suzanne lived in a military barracks with other people I believe they had a communal bathroom communal showers etc because I I don't think in enlisted housing you have your own bathroom did you ever live in enlisted housing especially not for quote-unquote person you don't yeah you live you have a room there's a communal bathroom with showers and toilets and sinks and everything and then um, a communal kitchen basically it's an apartment and a communal it's a studio right 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 um so it's not unusual that there would be and and the murder scene was a public park where other people had been. Um, also, they kind of misportray the park uh, in trying to say that the confession was false. They also alleged that he didn't really lead the investigators to the crime scene. The investigators told him where the crime scene was or took him to the crime scene. But again, the naval investigators weren't at Oriole Park when Suzanne's body was found. Because right. they picked up Allie and they were questioning Allie. <clears throat> um, they also filed additional motions to produce samples and preserve evidence. Um, all of those requests were denied by the trial court. Uh, that denial was affirmed by the Court of Criminal Appeals. And the Tennessee Supreme Court did not review the DNA request. So they didn't weigh in on interpretation of the the statute or any of the findings made by the trial court or the Court of Criminal Appeals on Allie's request for DNA testing. And remember that because it's going to come up later. Um, okay. Allie then sought a stay of execution in either the Middle District or the Western District of Tennessee or both. A stay was granted in the Western District of Tennessee where Allie was pursuing um, a motion to alter or amend the original habeas corpus denial. 
Mm-hmm. And he pursued that litigation for some time. Then the uh, Shelby County District Attorney requested, District Attorney General requested a new execution date be set. Uh, a prior request had been denied because Allie was still litigating uh, different issues in federal court. And the state Supreme Court set May 17, 2006 as a new execution date. Um, Allie continued pursuing his claims in federal court. He also filed claims uh, challenging lethal injection that he was litigating. It was extremely, extremely confusing. Um, and mm-hmm. in May, on May 17, 2006, he got a reprieve from the governor's office to pursue a request for DNA testing. Apparently, the Board of Pardons and Paroles um, recommended that the governor order DNA testing. Governor Bredesen felt that that was outside <clears throat> of his authority, but he granted the reprieve so that Allie could pursue uh, testing requests in state court. And then Bredesen left it up to the state court whether he uh, met the requirements of the statute to obtain testing. Um, Allie first filed a 19 uh, civil rights claim and alleged a constitutional entitlement to DNA testing in federal court. Um, That was eventually denied and dismissed by the federal court, and that was affirmed by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And all this is going on in May and early June of 2006. Uh, They also filed a second request in state court. Uh, This time they added citing the meaning of the potentially exculpatory results of DNA testing. Um, But that's all speculation, especially after so much time has passed. Um, By that time, there had been a malfunction of a freezer at the University of Tennessee building where most of the samples were. So the blood samples taken from the car, the hair samples taken – uh, samples taken from Suzanne at the time of her autopsy, samples taken from Allie for reference. Um, all those samples were in that freezer and the freezer malfunction, and that destroyed all that evidence. The other items of physical evidence had been kept at the uh, Shelby County Criminal Court in the clerk's office, but they weren't packaged in 1987 after trial in the way that they would be packaged now. Um, They also highlighted exoneration cases based on DNA from other states and jurisdictions, and they talked about Paul House's case. Uh, He was exonerated by DNA evidence 
um, because his but in that case that was not like Allie. In that case, semen from the victim was used to link House to the rape and murder. When uh-huh. DNA testing done, it turned out the semen belonged to her husband. And they yeah. had statements from the husband, hearsay from witnesses that the husband had confessed to killing his wife. And they also had, in House's case, um, a evidence technician or an officer apparently at some point when evidence was being trans uh transported Al- uh house's pants and blood samples from the victim were somehow in the same vicinity of each other and so there was a potential for contamination of house's clothing with the victim's blood on it which had been used at trial I never quite bought that, to be honest. <laughs> but um, he, you know, House got his testing and he was exonerated. Right. So um, they also uh, cited the description given by Scott Lancaster, who may not have ever seen Allie, whose you know impression at night of Allie. He may have thought Allie was tan with dark hair at night. I mean, the you know the mugshot, black and white mugshot picture of Allie, sure as heck looks like somebody tan with dark hair. Um, they also cite Borup's brown on brown vehicle, which more closely matches descriptions of the vehicle given by the witnesses, which isn't necessarily true. Um, Allie's vehicle was a green station wagon, and some witnesses said brown or green. At night, it's at 10 o'clock at night, it's not necessarily going to be easy to determine brown or green or blue or black. Um, but the other problem is that Allie's vehicle was also described to have a loud muffler and Kentucky license plates. And they offer no corroborated evidence that John Borup's vehicle had Kentucky license plates and a loud muffler. Again, in her book, Amy Higuera claims that Borup's friends and family told her that he liked to soup up his vehicles and make them loud and put on big tires. But again, that's hearsay. That's statements that these unnamed witnesses allegedly made to her, not testimony from witnesses who know John Borup and testified that he liked to soup up his vehicles, make them loud, and put on big tires. <clears throat> and again, they cite Borup's motive, which I find to be totally speculative because they don't even know what Suzanne's situation was. They believe she was going to California to be with a fiance and that Borup was jealous and killed her. But in reality, she was going to North Carolina because that's where the Marines were sending her. Right. Now, she would, she was going to try and get transferred to California 
at some point in the future. But like I said, I don't think John Borup would have been jealous of Suzanne going to North Carolina because that's where the Marines were sending her. Yeah, I'm sure he knew the situation. Yeah. And um, then they also bring up the tire tracks and the evidence that didn't match Allie. And then just to kind of stretch it out and buy some more time, because that can be the only reason that they're they're trying to get discovery in a procedure that usually does not permit discovery, they requested depositions to uh, determine where the physical evidence was and what still existed. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself defeats part of the statute where – and when you make the request, you have to prove that the evidence still exists and is in a condition to permit testing. So if you need to find out whether evidence exists and is a condition to permit testing, you've got to know on one of your factors, and therefore the court doesn't have to order testing and isn't permitted to order testing. Right. Um, and... All those requests, again, were denied by the trial court. In uh, Amy Higuero's book, she claims that the DNA testing request in 2006 was before the same trial judge who had been biased against Allie all along. Um, That is wrong, or it's false, or it's a damn lie. The DNA testing request went to Judge Higgs, who was the judge who took over in 1994 when the uh, state post-conviction claims were remanded back to the trial court for Judge Higgs to decide due to the perceived bias on the part of Judge Axley by Judge White. And also I have to say – I meant to say this earlier. Judge White, unfortunately, after she remanded this claim back to the trial court, she took the brunt of the dissatisfaction for this order, and she was not reelected to the Court of Criminal Appeals. And I think that that was totally wrong. Everybody right. who did it. Everybody who tore her up in the media and, you know, wherever in 1994, they did it because she was basically saving the state of Tennessee, a hugely embarrassing issue. Right. Had they, had they, had she not remanded for another judge to consider Allie's claims, had he been executed, and had the Innocence Project come in 10 years later like they did with Cameron Todd Willingham, suddenly Allie would be on a list of innocent people executed. Right. Which is... Because Fred Axley, Judge Axley, had every right to have a fixed opinion that was not positive about Sedley Alley. 
He's human. Don't get me wrong. And Judge White did not criticize Judge Axley for that. She just felt that some of his statements during the post-conviction proceedings, especially related to Allie's request for states of execution, she felt that those statements could give the appearance of impropriety or the appearance of bias. And that in light of those statements, the claims really needed to be decided by a judge who could look at them fairly and impartially. Right. And so I I feel very bad for Judge White or Justice White because she should not have been punished for doing the right thing in in uh, Allie's case. I mean it was the absolute right thing to do. Um so yeah. I and I don't ever even when I don't agree with the judge, I understand they're doing just like the Arkansas Supreme Court, when they twice sent claims back to the trial court, you know, I wasn't mad at them. I was like, okay, they have to do this because – and in both cases, or in at least one case, they said Eccles' counsel was wrong for not trying to go into the trial court in the first place. You know, but they're doing the right thing to see due process – through and there's nothing wrong with that I may not agree with their opinion but I support their um, their need to, to you know take the action that they do so anyway off that soapbox <laughs> before I fall um, the 2006 uh, request for DNA testing was no more successful than the uh, 2004 request. Uh, it was denied by the trial court, Judge Higgs, and then the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals reviewed Judge, Judge Higgs's decision, and they affirmed the denial, and the Tennessee Supreme Court uh, declined to review. And basically the reason the Tennessee Supreme Court affirmed the denial is because, once again, Allie did not meet all of the criteria, all four um, factors of the DNA testing statute. Again, it wasn't some conspiracy against Allie. It was that he did not produce sufficient evidence to support his claim for DNA testing. So, uh, and again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Allie also filed lethal injection challenges in federal court, which were basically found that they weren't filed timely because they could have been filed years before when Tennessee question on that real quick before we just Mm -hmm. glaze over that because of what you just said it kind of strikes me as odd because hell there was 
there's people that on their execution date have lethal injection challenges out. Well, but the alley had an execution date in 2004, and Tennessee mm-hmm. had had trans transferred or adopted lethal injection as their form of execution. Right. Although I think they had lethal injection or electrocution. Your pick. Um, right. And and then when you picked, you couldn't complain. Uh, but Allie didn't file any challenges in 2004 when his execution date was set. Right. Uh, and they so they basically the the federal court found that um, the execution date was also set in I want to say January, and he waited until May. Mm-hmm. Or he waited until April, like six weeks before his execution. Right. See, this is where I'm I'm watching Swearingen. Because Swearingen's, I mean, you know, last Sunday is, is one month prior to his date on August 21st, and he still hasn't filed anything. Hmm. Um, so... <clears throat> And I think part of the other part of the reason is that Allie filed the um, lethal injection challenge as a civil rights claim under Section 1983, and that has a one-year statute of limitations. Right. And so he could have filed it at an earlier date, and he didn't, and he should have. Had he filed it in 2004 and then, you know, said, oh, well, look, my my execution date has been stayed now, but I still want to pursue this, he could have pursued it then. But, uh, you know, most of those weren't successful. That was uh, around the same time as uh, Bays versus Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So... um, and then there was, because of the governor's reprieve, Allie's execution date expired. The state moved to have a new execution date set, and a date was set for June 28, 2006. Allie filed a couple of uh, several things at the U.S. Supreme Court, again seeking DNA testing. And challenging the federal court's rulings on his DNA testing uh, requests. He also requested a stay of execution. The U.S. Supreme Court denied the stay, declined the writ, and denied his request for preservation of evidence. Um, he went before Governor Bredesen, and Governor Bredesen denied clemency. On June 27th, Allie's attorneys with Innocence Project and the Federal Public Defender's Office went to the home of Justice Merritt, who is a justice on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal. I think he's in Nashville. And they argued for a stay, ex parte, without the prosecutor being present, 
and Justice Merritt granted the stay. Um, and the state immediately filed a motion to vacate the stay with the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal panel. They didn't, and another irregularity with that is that they didn't file the motion for a stay with the clerk in the Sixth Circuit. They took uh-huh. a motion to stay to Judge Merritt, who wasn't on their panel, who had no prior involvement in Allie's case, and got him to issue a stay of execution. Wow. While theoretically okay. the rules say it can be done that way, it's highly irregular for it to be done that way. Right. Not only on the part of the attorneys, but on the part of Justice Merritt. Um, and I can tell you, if a prosecutor went to a Tennessee Supreme Court justice and got an execution date set, ex parte, at that justice's home, the defense attorneys would have, would have lost strokes, would scream and holler and have fits, and more likely than not, some state regulatory board, disciplinary board for attorneys, would be having a chat with that prosecutor. Right. So um, uh, that was just a totally – it was a Hail Mary last-minute effort to stave off the inevitable. Uh, That stay was was vacated by the panel, uh, Sixth Circuit panel, that had been assigned to Allie's case on his two prior appeals. And on June 28, 2006, Allie was executed. Okay. Um, I had his last words somewhere, but I, I, I can't even find him now. So um, he didn't take responsibility for his actions. Of course not. Uh, to, to his dying day, this is the other interesting thing. To his dying day... He never claimed he did do it. He always claimed he could not remember doing it. Oh. And said he didn't think he did do it. And that was yeah. the basis for multiple attorneys to pursue DNA testing. So if you don't think you did it, then that's good enough. Yeah. So, and you know, I I basically I don't put any stock in anything convicted murderer has to say. Right. I don't care if they've said they're innocent from the day of their arrest because they have a vested interest in lying right. and manipulating and, you know, right. that's a freaking, That's I'm not, not a freaking story. <laughs> right. 
Um, so, uh, you know, that they don't hold any weight with me. I want exculpatory evidence. I want proof of, you know, if you say you had an alibi, I want proof. Especially and not from Yapadna, who could have testified at trial, but didn't, who suddenly 20 years later comes forward and said, yeah, he's with me. How much sense does it make, especially if your life hangs in the balance, how much sense does it make to go, oh, yeah, well, shit, I can't do Well, you know, the funny thing is, it's like I said about Dahlia DiPolito. If she had admitted to what she'd done and pled guilty in 2009, she would have been out of prison probably by 2014. I mean, Lisa, my Because if she'd admitted and pled guilty... She would have been eligible to be sentenced to only about four years. For the love of for the love of all things that are holy, OJ freaking still maintains his innocence, and we know that some bitch, minus a book, is guilty as the day is long. Right. <clears throat> so anyway, but um, I find it interesting that you know they went with false confession and. A lot of um, creative writing, and when we get to the 2019 claim, that's all I can uh, that's all I can term it as is creative writing. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the uh, they filed a request for DNA testing at the 30th Judicial District Court in Shelby County, which is the trial court. Um, They also wrote a letter to Governor Lee, who is the current governor of Tennessee, and they held a press conference. Of course they did. Where little little Barry Sheck got up and talked. Um, And the misstatements in the press conference and in the petition are staggering. One of the okay. first misstatements that um, that Barry Sheck made was that a case, uh, Powers versus State, which was decided by the Tennessee Supreme Court in 2011, that the Tennessee Supreme Court said we got it wrong in Sedley Alley's case. The Supreme Court never said that, okay, in Powers. They, they cited Alley's case. But they never said we were wrong, we didn't do it. And and in reality, the Tennessee Supreme Court can't say we are, we were wrong because they declined to review Sedley Alley's DNA requests. Um, well, so Powers' decision by the Tennessee Supreme Court has nothing to do with either Alley 1 or Alley 2, which were the criminal court appeals of the request for DNA testing because they weren't decided by the state Supreme Court. They were decided by the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, In reality, the case that Powers reverses is called Crawford versus State, and that was a 2003 case which held that post-conviction DNA testing did not include access to databases to identify phantom suspects. 
that was the controlling law at the time Alley 1 and Alley 2 were decided by the Court of Criminal Appeals. So, yes, Powers reverses Crawford, but it it doesn't have anything to do with Alley 1 or Alley 2 except that they do cite Alley 1 and Alley 2 when they're talking about the you know DNA testing law and the prior holdings regarding DNA testing law. So really Powers is just the current interpretation of the Tennessee DNA testing law as of 2011. And it's expanding the reach of the DNA testing law to permit people who request testing under that law to also receive or to be able to have um, evidence results submitted to a a DNA database like CODIS. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, though, if the convicted person, say the Innocence Project, if the Innocence Project does all the testing through a private laboratory, the Innocence Mm -hmm. Project in the private laboratory cannot submit to CODIS because that can only be done through law enforcement. Okay. So um, they also claim that Borup drove an identical car as the one described by witnesses. That is a total and complete lie. That was told by Kelly Henry of the uh, Federal Public Defender's Office. Borup drove a Dodge Aspen station wagon. Dodge Aspens didn't even go into production until 1976. They were produced from 76 to 86. Um, The model year of the vehicle Bora had access to and drove would have been between 76 and 86. Of course, April Higuera did not ask, what year was that car? Just like she didn't ask, what state was it registered in? What? Um, and I posted pictures of Allie's vehicle and exemplar vehicles that are also the Mercury Colony Park station wagons. There is no way in hell or heaven that anybody is going to confuse a Dodge Aspen station wagon for a Mercury Colony Park station wagon. The Mercury Colony Park station wagon is a 1972, which means it's one of those big-ass USS Enterprise-sized vehicles Uh that probably, if you looked at the street, you needed to put gas in the car because it probably got like three miles to a gallon. The Dodge Aspen was a mid-sized station wagon. And, you know, Mercury Uh and Dodge, their vehicles have never, ever in a million years since day one of production, they have never looked alike. Ford, Mercury, and Dodge, Plymouth, Chrysler have always looked different. So there's no way somebody's going to confuse a Mercury or a Ford for a Dodge or a Dodge for a Mercury or Ford. And some of the witnesses right. said it was either a Ford or a Mercury. 
Um, I also found in the stuff I was reviewing, it's a PDF file. What I'm going to do is I'm going to upload it to the WordPress page and post it in the comments uh-huh. um, of the page for the show so that people can go and look at bigger, better pictures of Allie's vehicle. Allie's vehicle was the USS Enterprise. Uh-huh. The Dodge Aspen is the SS Minnow. Uh-huh. Okay. The Dodge okay. Aspen was one of those mid-sized cars that they started making in the mid-1970s after the gas crisis in the early 70s to be more fuel efficient and not so big. So um, they also, you know, said Allie was entitled to DNA testing in 2004 and 2006. Um, That's also not true. The courts, both federal and state, weighed in on those allegations and found against Allie. Um, You may not agree with them, but to pretend that the decisions never happened is just uh, misleading the public. Right. Uh, Which is exactly what the Innocence Project wants to do. They want to mislead the public. That's what they're about now. Um, uh, They they don't care. If, If they get testing and it proves you're guilty, they just walk away. And they don't inform the public, hey, look, we got DNA testing in this case, and it proved his guilt. Uh-huh. The system got his case right. Um, right. And, you know, just like with Rodney Reed, they have DNA from him inside on her body, but they're arguing that he's not guilty because of a uh-huh. a relationship they've never proven. And they're accusing a person against whom there is zero DNA evidence. Right. Um, they also allege false confession. Uh, they sit, claim that some of the crime scene evidence didn't match Allie. Uh, another thing that they've done, in addition to misrepresenting where Suzanne was going after she graduated, they are also conflating the base and Orgill Park. Uh-huh. They're in. They're implying or saying that Suzanne went off went off the base into Orgo Park to run, which is a lie. She wasn't planning to run in Orgo Park. She wasn't going to run in Orgo Park. She never ran in Orgo Park. She ran on the base. Right. Orgo Park is not part of the base. To get to Orgo Park, you have to leave the base and go down Navy Road and go to Orgo Park. It's a few miles. Mm-hmm. Part of it may abut the base. Um, and, you know, they're lying and saying she was going to California when she was going to North Carolina. Right. And there's testimony at the trial about that. Um, they're, you know, basically they trotted out Ray Crone and Sabrina Butler Um Neither Ray Crone nor Sabrina Butler were Tennessee cases. Ray Crone was convicted of murder in Arizona. Sabrina Butler was convicted of murder of her child in Mississippi. They were both on death row. Ray Crone was exonerated based on DNA testing. 
Uh-huh. He was one of the first exonerations. He's now living in Tennessee. Whoop-de-doo. Um, Sabrina Butler was not exonerated based on DNA testing. Sabrina right. Butler was exonerated basically because the evidence of injury to the child and evidence of abuse that was used against her at trial were found in a subsequent appeal, I believe her direct appeal, to have been improperly admitted. Uh-huh. And so she was given a new trial, and at that trial she was exonerated. Right. There may have also been a medical examiner whose opinion that the child's death was a result of child abuse at the time of the investigation and first trial changed because there was a case in Texas where uh, the Dr. Bayardo said, oh, I said this was child abuse, but I was wrong. It could have been accidental. And so a woman named Kathy Henderson was released from death row and eventually released from prison um, when she had killed the child. She took his body, put it in a cooler, drove it to Missouri and abandoned it there and fled Texas and had to be extradited back to Texas to face charges. Those are not the actions of a person who had a child accidentally die in their care. True. Um, and, you know, there are just a lot of things that that, that they're claiming. Um, they're, they're trying to use, like I said, saying that people mistook Borup's Dodge Aspen for Alley's Mercury Colony Park. Um, they don't talk about the loud muffler. They don't talk about the two Marines and the gate guard, except to say the gate guard just saw a blue license plate, which could have been California or Connecticut. Uh-huh. Um, and then another thing is they're trying to allege that a gentleman by the name of Thomas Bruce, who's currently awaiting trial on murder charges and sexual assault charges in Missouri – Um, is the person who really killed Suzanne. And this is based on the fact that he was in the same avionics school. Although I wonder if my uncle is listening, because I think those schools, well, you probably know from the Air Force. um, When you have a school like the avionics school, don't they run multiple ones? So if you're out, if you're transferred to another place, another base, that means you finish school. Yeah. So if this Thomas Bruce, he was not at Millington, he was transferred to San Diego in, I think, like February or March of 85. I mean, he may have... So he would have been done with school. So he wouldn't have even been eligible. He wouldn't have been eligible to come back for graduation. And this is their basis. They say he was in the same avionics school. Well, he could have maybe been in the same avionics school, but I don't see how he was transferred no. to California if he hadn't likely. finished his avionics school. Yeah, more than likely, more than likely, he was finished. 
with that part. And so they're saying that he could have come back to Millington to attend the graduation the following day, and he could be the one who killed Suzanne. But they don't even have any information that places him in Millington. And the biggest, hugest problem I have with the 2019 requests is that Barry Sheck called it Millicent, not Millington. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's just me, but I find if you're going to make an argument, you need to know everything backwards and forwards. And you need to be sure that when you're naming a place, you do not name the wrong place. There is no such place as Millicent. Right. And not only did he say it in the press conference, it's in the petition. So basically, they don't know. I mean, he committed, this Thomas Bruce committed a murder in St. Louis, but it's not like what happened to Suzanne um, at all. He went into a place called Catholic Supply um, I think he was intent on robbing the place. He sexually assaulted two of the women there. The third woman, when he told her to remove her clothing, she told him no, and he shot her and killed her. And then he left. So that's not even close right. to what happened to Suzanne. He didn't abduct one woman and, you know, sexually mutilate her. He took on three women, sexually assaulted two, killed one when she resisted him, and then he left. Mm -hmm. And he committed another sexual assault, which he ended up being identified after his arrest in this case. Um, But to me, it looks like he was in the Navy for... I want to say 17 to 20 years. And it looks like when he left the Navy, his transition back to civilian life was difficult because he had um, a relatively stable residency in California when he was in the Navy. Mm -hmm. Mostly apartment complexes. He would be there two, three years. And then he'd move, you know, to another apartment complex. But, you know, it was pretty pretty much stable. In Missouri, he's been at a place a couple of months. He's been in another place a year. He's been in another place less than six months. He's been through a divorce. Um, he's had some lawsuits filed against him. Um, so it, it looks like his transition to civilian life was not a smooth one. Yeah. It looks like what happened last, this was in 2017 or 2018, it looks like he just decompensated. He's had a lot of different jobs, so he hasn't had a stable employment history. He hasn't had a stable residency. Um, they've had money problems. Uh, you know, I think he just didn't didn't transition back to civilian life. And that this is more or less an aberration for him. 
but I don't think it, it's not at all like what happened to Suzanne because Suzanne was abducted from the military base, driven off the base, taken to the park, and murdered after having been beaten severely. And, you know, this guy left two victims alive, and he didn't. He didn't otherwise, you know, he didn't beat those two victims to within an inch of their lives. He sexually assaulted them, and that's going to scar them forever. But, you know, he didn't engage in any excessive violence toward them. So, and this is, a, this is, Barry Sheck says, ooh, he's a serial killer, and I think he killed Suzanne Collins. And he claims... He claims to have gotten that tip from authorities in St. Louis, which I call BS on. Yeah. I I think he just had an enterprising investigator who saw the story about Thomas Bruce, looked him up on LinkedIn, saw that he was in the Navy, saw that he attended the Millington Navy avionics school, and decided this is the guy. Um, so I, I think it's just BS. And the allegations against John Borup are BS. He's had a stable residency, stable employment, stable family. His name does not come up with a single news article, except when Allie's name is attached. Right. Um, so I, I don't think that he, and again, he had no motive to be upset about Suzanne going where the Nate, where the Marines were sending her. And he had no expectation that his relationship with Suzanne was exclusive because he had other girls. Right. She may have thought of as exclusive, but he didn't. And, you know, like the I mentioned the book written by April Higuera, a lot of the stuff in the book about a- that April Higuera wrote isn't even in any of Ali's claims. It isn't in her right. affidavit that she thought that she and her, um, her significant other girlfriend uh, thought that when they interviewed Borup, thought that he had somebody following him and thought that he was going to kill them. They got totally paranoid about him. You know. But it's that that Innocence Project bullshit of when the convicted person tells a lie, it's not a lie, it's a mistake. And it's understandable given the situation that they're in. It's excusable. But when an alternate suspect says something that isn't correct, they're lying, they're manipulating they're doing it on purpose, and it's horrible. They shouldn't be doing it. And it proves uh-huh. they're guilty. You know. So Of course. Um, so the, the family, Allie family request for DNA testing, more likely than not, um, is going to be denied. A hearing on it is set for October 14th, 2019 at 9 a.m., uh, it's going to be heard by a judge in Shelby County Criminal Court, uh, Judge Paula 
Skehan. And um, she'll decide it. I don't, I just don't think the, the evidence that they're raising as far as Allie's alleged innocence is no different than the claims that they raised in 2004 and 2006. So I don't think that they've really proven that the results of Allie's case would have been, been different, even with exculpatory results. True. Our result, well, not even exculpatory. They wouldn't necessarily be exculpatory, even with results that excluded Allie on certain items of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and they haven't proven, you know, They've proven the existence of some evidence, but they haven't proven that it's in a condition suitable for testing because of the way it's been stored over 34 years mm-hmm. since Suzanne Collins' murder. So I highly doubt that they're going to be able to get testing under either 204 or, or 304 or 305. That's right. my prediction. Um, Governor Lee, however, uh, he may, could decide to do what Governor Warner did, which is order testing of limited evidence. And also, you know, some of the things that they want to test, as I, I said earlier, there's no provable connection to the murder. Um, you know, they want to test Suzanne's clothing. Um, they want to test, you know, some of Suzanne's clothing. They want to test things found in the park. Uh, Suzanne's clothing is provable. So, okay, we'll say maybe he should grant testing on Suzanne's clothing. But I don't know that they have a reference sample from uh, Sedley Alley. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a problem because the reference sample from Sedley Alley was destroyed at the same time in the 1990s as all the other biological evidence that was stored at the University of Tennessee. True. So um, – and I I would have a hard time with them having a Y chromosome – doing a Y chromosome test with Allie's son. Or maybe, well, sure. I guess they could do a Y chromosome with multiple Allie relatives, male relatives. Um, but I don't know if I would even, I would even trust that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, um, yeah, and I think they're going to have to prove they have a reference sample from Sedley Alley. Right. And if they can't do that, then there's going to be no point in DNA testing. So, true, true. Um, and a final false statement that um, is made, the state's theory at trial was never that Alley hit Suzanne Collins with his car or stabbed her in the head. That was part of Allie's confession. 
But the state's theory is that he beat her, abducted her, took her to Orgel Park, and sexually assaulted her with a tree branch. That was their theory at trial. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, I think we're done with Mr. Alley. I will, okay. of course, um, be watching the news and making sure if there's any developments in Alley's case uh, between now and October. And I'll update it once um, once the hearing is held. Because I'm sure, regardless of whether testing is granted or denied, Innocence Project is going to publicize it. Right. Absolutely. So, um, and I think we might want to try and put on the schedule at some point uh, the Reed case. Okay. Because I think there's a lot of material to to really go into more specifically since the last time we looked at it. Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts on Allie? Um, I mean, he's an asshole. Does that count? Yeah, sure, it counts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, like the dude's crazy. Like the fact that he got away with what he got away with and all that shit. Just blows my mind. But. Well, he didn't get away with it. I mean, he he ended up paying well, he, the price, but it took him 31 years to get justice for Suzanne. Right. Yeah. It's, or no, 21 years. Sorry, 21 years. I got. To, I warned you, people. I'm horrible with math. <laughs> it happens. So, all right. Well, everybody, come back and check the page tomorrow. I'll have some better pictures of the. Um, I'll post some better pictures of Allie's vehicle, as well as some pictures of Dodge Aspens, so that people can see why I say. That anyone who thinks a witness could confuse a Mercury Colony Park 1972 station wagon with a mid-70s to early 80s model Dodge Aspen is crazy. (laughs) All right. We ready to put a bow on it? Let's put a bow on it. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us on Tuesday, July 30th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 23, The Richmond Hill Explosion. In November of 2012, Montserrat Shirley, Mark Leonard, Bill Leonard, and others came up with an insurance fraud scheme to collect from an insurance policy on Shirley's house. The resulting 
explosion and fire killed two people, injured seven others, and caused millions in property damages to the residents of Shirley's Indiana neighborhood. We'll talk about the scheme, its implementation, and the resulting criminal prosecutions against Shirley, the Leonard brothers, and other members of the conspiracy. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.